The effective badass can be thought of as a balanced leader, with a spear in one hand and a Zen bench in the other. Today, my guest is retired U.S. Navy SEAL Mark Devine, whose books Unbeatable Mind, Way of the Seal, and the upcoming Staring Down the Wolf, The Seven Commitments That Forge Elite Teams, joins us today to talk a little about how to forge those elite teams and become a true modern badass. That's this week on the Badass Agile Podcast. Greetings, team. Welcome to the Badass Agile Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Williams. Mark Devine, how are you? I am awesome, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show. Mark, thanks for being on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. In a minute, I want to talk about how I know you and how you came to be on the show, because I don't do interviews often, but First for the tribe, as we always do at the beginning of every episode, let's take a moment to remember why we're here. To create an elite tribe of leaders who truly serve their clients and communities by doing what matters and what works, relentlessly chasing value and excellence like a badass. (laughs) There are so many. (laughs) You like that one? Yeah, I like it. There are so many resources out there that talk about what you need to do to be agile, but we're focused on who you need to become in order to lead teams. So let's hammer down those fundamentals to create a truly unique and unstoppable force in this industry. And remember, guys, if this podcast helps you, all we ask is that you tell your friends. Mark Devine, my guest today, is an ex if I get this right, a retired commander of the United States Navy SEALs. Do I have it right? That's correct. Wow. Good job. So before we get into your experience, and you know what? I actually want to focus less on the, you know, the badass shoot 'em up kind of hero stories that I'm sure you have in droves. And more, I want to talk about your new book and how it applies to and impacts leadership. Mm-hmm. But I just want to state for those of you who know me, the reason that I am where I am today has everything to do with the fact that I've been part of Mark's Unbeatable Mind program since 2014. Anyone who knows me would tell you that the transformation has been unbelievable. And so first, I want to thank you because you've changed my life in so many positive ways. Wow. But I'm also really interested in your story arc, uh, Mark, Mm -hmm. because it seems to me in reading your initial books like Unbeatable Mind and Way of the Seal that you've almost gone from adventure seeker to warrior to, in a way, an educator and trainer. Mm -hmm. And now, if you look at the current book, which we'll announce in a moment, you're you're now at a point where you're, to my mind, spreading hope and positivity around leadership in every area of life. So how did you get where you are today? (laughs) Well, I was born at a very young age in a small town in upstate New York. (laughs) (laughs) How far back do we want to go? (laughs) (laughs) Wherever you want, man, wherever you want. (laughs) <laughs> I think probably the salient point, so I don't bore your listeners to death, is that I, you know, I was a pretty average guy and grew up in a, like I said, a small town, and I mean really small, four hundred people, upstate New York, and I grew up in, you know, really uh, kind of a tumultuous family, a lot of anger from my father and rage, and you know, alcohol ran through our family for generations, and none of that really phased me much. I didn't think in my younger years. Because I was athletic, and so I had athletics and endurance sports to kind of um, take my mind off it, get me outside, you know, give me some healthy hobbies and habits. And then most importantly, I, I would say because we sem- uh, spend our summers in the Adirondacks and the upper upstate New York is just beautiful, and there's, you know, millions of acres of wilderness, I, I really spent a lot of time outdoors. It got really comfortable being silent in nature and um, really connecting kind of to kind of the earth like that way. And I wasn't like a grainy, earthy kind of person, but um, you'll see where this is going, how it connected, you know, to who I am today. So I, I went to um, public high school, but I was, you know, top of my class-ish. And that um, allowed me to get a slot at Colgate University where I went to you know, swim competitively and also, you know, attempt to do some academic work. And then after Colgate, I got an um, offer with Coopers and Librand to go down to New York and participate in a program where they were sending a bunch of liberal arts grads to NYU 
to get our master's in accounting. And then, you know, that would qualify us to be CPAs. The idea there, and there were a bunch of the big eight firms that recruited from the Ivy League and lower Ivy in, in New England. The idea was that we would, they wanted to bring in non-accounting majors who could over time, you know, if they stuck with it, turn out to be more well-rounded partners. Ironically, that was validated, although not many people stuck with it. Like I bailed after four years, but one of my good friends from Colgate is now the CEO of E&Y or EY. Mm. And he went through the very same program in the same year as me. So it's kind of cool. At any rate, um, it's hard to tell this story quickly. (laughs) Keep going. But I'll get to the, the juicy part. So here I am at 21 years old in Manhattan, you know, in a suit and tie, doing something I had, you know, I really had no idea what I was getting into, this CPA consulting business. But it was kind of a story that I had been told that I was a business guy and I was meant to like go cut my teeth in the real world and then come home and run the family business, which was in upstate New York also in Utica. We've been around for over a hundred years. And so I was kind of marching to that drummer, so to speak. And um, in an effort to continue my physical training, I was running in the morning and going to the gym and I wanted something else, something else that I could really sink my teeth into. And one night I was walking home from um, the subway station and I passed this uh, martial arts studio and I heard the sounds and I looked up and I saw the sign and it was World Sado Karate Headquarters. And I went up and I met my first real mentor who also happened to be a Zen master. His name was Tadashi Nakamura. So here's, you know, Mark Devine from Hicksville, New York. At 21 years old, I'm now sitting on a Zen bench every day and doing long sits on Thursdays. And then over uh, the course of four years, several times a year, we go to the Zen Mountain Monastery in Woodstock, New York to do a long, uh, what they call session, S-E-S-H-I-O-N or something like that. I'm not sure how you spell it, but a long sit. Mm-hmm. And... um now, of course, what we know about meditation these days, especially uh, when it's applied to a young brain that is still developing and the neuroplastic effect can have an extraordinary impact. And it did for me and it transformed me. So over the four years that I was in Manhattan working as a CPA, I uh, also got my MBA in finance. I got my black belt in karate and I transformed into a warrior into the sense that I, you know, I was I was going down the wrong path and I, I was really meant to be a warrior. And all that came from that meditation. And so in 1989, I packed my bags. I left all that behind and joined the Navy um, to become an elite Navy SEAL. So that's kind of um, part of how I got here, right? It was this early foray into Zen and the martial arts. But it wasn't the martial art. I would say, Chris, that gave me the warrior um, kind of path idea. It was really the Zen. And it was an internal experience that I had in my meditative practices that showed me, right, that my archetypal energy and my path or my calling in life was to be a warrior and a leader. And then, you know, over time, it showed me that I'm meant to be a teacher as well, Mm. which is kind of what you alluded to. So off I went to be a Navy SEAL leader. I the skills that I developed on the meditation bench um, came in handy in SEAL training, believe it or not. I graduated number one in my class. My entire boat crew graduated with me, which was, I think, never been done before. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's ever happened where out of 185 students, only 19 of us graduated. I was number one and six other members of that 19 graduating class were my team. Wow. So something was different. Chris, about the way that I was leading and the way we worked and operated as a team. I don't think I knew at the time exactly what that was, just that it worked. And I've pretty much spent the next 30 years trying to unpack a lot of that and how, how my success as a leader in the SEALs worked. And a lot of what I wrote in the way of the SEAL is kind of about that. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I got into business, when I got out of the SEALs, I got into the business world and I realized that a lot of what I had learned in the SEALs uh, was falling apart or was like incomplete. And that's when I really uh, started to do a deep dive into looking at the why, why I was so successful in leading elite team in the military, but I was having trouble building one in the civilian world. And I realized it was much harder because you're not dealing with this homogeneous group of badasses. You're dealing with, mm-hmm. you know, a very broad based eclectic group of people at all different levels of development with all different ideas and aspirations. And now you got to bring them together and and curate 
an elite team out of that. And in order to do that, you got to have like a, an incredibly strong emotional foundation, yes. which um, most people I've found and most of my clients are not that strong in that area because they just don't really do anything about it, right? It's not part of our training. It's not something that's taught in school. You know, you pretty much have to be broken to even, you know, be considered therapy or any of the tools like EMDR that are so helpful. Mm -hmm. So I went and embarked about 15 years ago on a deep emotional quest that has really made a massive difference in my leadership authenticity and my style and just who I am as a person. And it's opened me up to, you know, a whole host of other, you know, opportunities. Mm -hmm. And then kind of part and parcel with that, because I started teaching things like breath control, concentration, meditation, visualization to Navy SEALs, and they were having such an extraordinary success. So that, that came through my first business, or not my first business, but one of my business called Seal Fit. And my, the SEALs I was training, 90% um, success rate getting through SEAL training, which is Incredible. comparable to, yeah, 85% fail rate for mm -hmm. the general population who would just go and give it a whirl, you know? And these, right. you know, even those people are extremely fit. So something I was doing was really effective and I needed to really understand it and go deep in it. So I committed back in 2006 when I started SealFit to really go deep, not just in the emotional work, but also in my mental development through um, meditation and really understanding it and, and practicing it diligently every single day. Mm -hmm. And so the combination of the mental development and emotional development, I found to be a holy grail as a leader. Like it really has worked hand in glove to just open me up and uh, tap all sorts of raw power that was either hidden or uh, I was blocking from myself with, uh, you know, because of some sort of shadow element that was formed at a very early age in my life. So that was, you know, probably way more information than, than you were looking for, but um, it's kind of roundabout way of how I got here, you know, through a lot of training, a lot of uh, personal inquiry, self-awareness, and f trial and error, both in the business world and, and in the SEALs and the lead operating unit. Awesome. Thank you for that. So it's not more than I was looking for. It's everything I was looking for. I'll tell you why. First of all, the book is called Staring Down the Wolf, The Seven Commitments That Forge Elite Teams. And it's out when? Uh, March 2nd. It's March 2nd. Available for pre-order now, by the oh, way. Oh, great. Great. We could talk about that at the end of the show. We Let have some cool pre-order offers. Oh, excellent. Let's do that. Okay. So you brought up a whole bunch of things as you were talking, and I want to unpack them as best I can. First of all, I want everyone who's listening to this show, who works in corporate environments or works in community or, or even just within your families, to feel like you, through this book, could create your own quote-unquote elite team. And mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say, Mark, that an elite team is not based on how much you know. You know, it's not the weapons training that makes you elite. It is rather the core principles. Probably one of the most foundational ones for me was the smoke jumpers creed. Mm -hmm. Do today what others won't so you can have tomorrow what others can't. Mm -hmm. The implication that it is what you choose to believe and then how you choose to act that makes the difference for leaders. Right. Converse right. to what we're being sold is that, I mean, leadership is big business. Let's face it. But I think a lot of the, the reason why there's so many books and so many videos and so many internet memes about what makes a great leader, and yet we're starved for great leadership, is that we might be focused on the wrong things. Right. What's so attractive to, great, glad to hear, um, because I want you to elaborate on what those things are. Mm -hmm. uh, let me ask you. What was it like to go from, I mean, the knowledge that you got from the SEAL teams and from the business world, you've distilled into these seven commitments and the notion mm -hmm. of five plateaus. Just a real quick note, what was it like to sit with a lifetime of knowledge and try to distill it into something that you can pack into a single book? <laughs> well, anyone who's listening who's written a book knows that it's a laborious process, right? And... um. I would say probably the most valuable thing for me in writing this book and any book that I have written in the past, but although I'm really um, turning it into a practice and I've got a number of books, you know, in my 
hip pocket that have yet to come out of me, and I'll use this process in every one, is once I de- define what it is I'm going to write about, like in this case, I, I didn't have the title, but I knew I was going to write about these um, fundamental, and I call them commitments because they're training, it's a training um, practice that leads to a habituated virtue, let's call it. So, you know, one of the commitments, for instance, the first one is courage. And you can say, well, courage first, it's a word. Yes. It's also an attitude. It's also a behavior. And when habituated, courage becomes a virtue. But, you know, how do you habituate something like courage if you don't practice it every day, right? So that, so you've got to commit to practice courage in order to have courage in your relationships and so what does that look like? It looks like humility. Mm-hmm. It looks like not taking the credit, checking your ego at the door and being you know, transparent and, and admitting your flaws, your failures, your weaknesses, and when you're wrong or when you screwed up, but taking accountability or even extreme ownership, you know, with my friend Jocko Willink would say, mm-hmm. and that all is, it all is encompassed in this idea of courage. Courage to basically not have to be perfect not have to look like you're always right, not have to be as a leader to, to pretend you have all the answers or to even pretend that you're in charge all the time. Right. Because you're not. So when I, um, back to your question specifically, when I set out to write this book, I knew I wanted to write like these, you know, and, I, and to me, like three was too little and 10 was too many, right? So right. I was like, settled on seven, <laughs> but it was like more like I was thinking about what are, you know, what really makes a team come together from my experiences, both in this uh, elite military unit, as well as in my civilian entrepreneurial endeavors. And I've, you know, built about five different companies. All have been successful at various degrees. What is, what have been the major things or practices that I've had to really dive into to bring out the best in my team? And notice I was focusing on the team first. What, what can we do to bring out the best in the team? Because the team is the locus of control in an organization. Right. The team is what gets stuff done. So all this focus on leadership um, capacity or the doing aspects of leadership, like you mentioned earlier, really mean nothing if you can't then bring out the best in your team and get your team aligned and fired on all cylinders around you know, whatever vision, mission, and plan that you have. So that's why a lot of leadership training falls short because they're right. working on what I call horizontal skills of doingness of a leader, as opposed to the vertical skills of becoming the most authentic and whole person that you can be, and then bringing that person to your team to unlock the team's potential. And we call that leadership. Mm-hmm. So when I started this book, I just sat and meditated, you know, back to the, you know, what I was saying earlier, the most valuable skill for me was to actually learn how to meditate. I'm not talking about using Headspace or 10% Happier or some visualization, you know, a different one every day. I'm talking about like the deep practice of learning to still your mind, to concentrate, to shift into more of an awakened awareness perspective and to utilize all of your mind system. And I call that whole mind so that you're getting more, you're thinking from the perspective of wisdom as opposed to cleverness. Mm-hmm. And when I sh- am able to, to shift into the, that perspective and then use that perspective to contemplate something deep like these issues around leadership and team building, then stuff just comes to me. Right. And so it, I spent a couple weeks without putting even pen to paper, just, you know, just contemplating this in a very um, meditative state and then it just came to me, right? Literally one day, you know, I had a, a download where I, I wrote down um, these seven commitments and then, you know, I meditated on them for another few days and then I was able to reorganize them. And then when I finished that session, I was like, holy cow, that is it right there. Like, I can't, I can't poke any holes in this, right? It right. seems to be like a complete knowledge nugget that is, is standalone and is, you know, it's worthy. And so that that became... Those seven ideas or concepts became the foundation for the book. There was a lot more after that that I had to really kind of consider, especially the book, Chris, as you know, after having read it, is kind of a, a yin and yang, right? It's mm-hmm. or a, you know, here's how you do it, and here's an example of how it's done really well. And I use some of my uh, SEAL teammates who are just exemplars in, the, in that elite world 
and some of their stories to show them how they really displayed the commitment in practice. And then I use my own stories in the business world to show how I fell down and usually smacked my face on the ground with that same commitment and how it really took me many years to kind of cultivate all of them and right. be able to bring them all into in, to bear in my teams. So it's the most vulnerable book that I've written in terms of here's a badass Navy SEAL basically saying, yeah, this stuff is hard and, um, and it's always going to be hard as a leader. It's, it's you're dealing with the most difficult thing that a human being can do, and that is to communicate with, understand, and connect at a heart level with other human beings, some of them, you, you know, some of whom are having a bad day. Right, right. right. <laughs> it's hard work. Like, yes. There's really very little else that we do as a leader that's, that's harder than that. Strategy is, they say, you know, culture eats strategy, and culture is about bringing out the best in your team. If you, if you don't have a good culture, you're, you're, you know, you're toast. Well, so you had mentioned something in the book. You had said, the minute I got into civilian world and started trying my hand at entrepreneurship, I didn't have my team having my back. So we always talk about team in corporate environments, but do we really do team well? I don't think we do. I don't think that anyone's really, you know, before we came along with our SEAL Fit and Armbill Mind programs, no one's really known how to teach team the way I'm talking about or we're talking about it here where you come together and you just strip off all the masks, yes. all the roles, all the accoutrements that make one person better than the other or more knowledgeable or more of an expert or whatever it is that you know, separates a team uh, members from each other. Mm -hmm. And then put them in situations where they have to ask for help, they have to offer help, or the team simply will fail yes. in its mission. And that develops great humility and uh, also trust because all of a sudden, you know, people are seeing that the, the appointed or anointed leader uh, suddenly ain't so perfect anymore. And that leader has to, you know, roger up that they need assistance mm -hmm. and they can't do it without their team. And everyone has that experience at some level. And it becomes, it, it, it moves the leader from a me, them kind of perspective to a I, we. Like, uh, yeah, I, I'm important. I've got to master myself every day so that I bring my best version of myself to the we-ness of the team so that we together can accomplish our mission. And so the, all the separation ends and then the, the leader's able to get out of the way. We used to say in the SEALs, we're ready to lead, ready to follow and never quit. Mm -hmm. and what we meant by that is even if I'm the, the lieutenant or lieutenant commander, many times, if not most of the time on a mission, I'm not leading. Right? I am letting the experts lead. I'm letting the strongest one at a particular phase lead. I'm letting the most alert one if I'm fatigued. I'm, I'm okay to get out of the way and let the brilliance of the team accomplish the mission. And, and you know, the team, the energy of a team when acting at this level is at least 20 times more powerful than just a bunch of individuals doing a job. And I, you know, that's a principle you know, you're aware of. I call that the 20X. Of course. And I remember one of the, the coolest things that attracted me to Unbeatable Mind was you saying, be prepared to meet yourself for the first time. And you're capable of 20 times what you think you are. That fascinated me. Right. I have a question for you. How much of leadership, what I take away from the book, is that a big chunk of leadership is not how much you build in terms of new knowledge or techniques or leadership tactics, but how much you strip away to return to our essential nature. So going back to your martial arts experience where you talk about emptying the teacup, which I love, mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about that in a moment. But first, let's, let's get down to this, those seven commitments. The seven commitments are courage, trust, respect, growth, excellence, resiliency, oh boy, there's a big pot full mm -hmm. there, and alignment. Now, I think anyone hearing those would say, okay, makes sense, heard that before. But your five plateau model discusses how these concepts kind of emerge over time and with practice in an evolutionary way. You can't just read the book right. and be there. Right. Can you discuss those five plateaus quickly? Yeah, sure. So the idea, and this is, um, the five plateaus are a, my expression through my work with our clients of a developmental model. And what we mean by the developmental model is that, you know, all human beings uh, essentially grow and develop through certain stages. And, um, you know, t dovetailing with uh, Carol Dweck's work, either we get stuck or, 
or stop at a particular stage because that's the stage that our family was at or, or we have some sort of, you know, emotional trauma that blocks us. So we might get stuck at a particular stage. It doesn't mean we're not smart. doesn't mean we're not worthy and great human beings, but it will mean that when you lead, you will be leading from that plateau where you got stuck and you're going to have a lot of shadow that you're just going to be dumping all over people. And, and so you can just think through like political leadership in this example. Can you, you know, think of any political leaders that make it to the top who are still dumping their emotional shadow and their, their, their lower stage of worldview development mm -hmm. uh, upon others, right? It happens in every type of organization. And so, um, you know, in political leadership, you know, you, you might find a lot of people who are at that kind of second plateau, which is, you know, protect what I call the protector, which are you know, protecting some sort of status quo, uh, fundamentalist ideology. And so we have a lot of that going on in our society. Mm -hmm. And then the, the third plateau I consider to be what I call the achiever. You see most achievers are in kind of the corporate and entrepreneurial world. Well, that's all fine and good, but you know, it's not the highest stage of development, right? At the achiever level, there's still a lot of shadow. There's a lot of ego. Um, there's a lot of uh, achieving at the expense of others or at the expense of the environment. There's a, a tribal or ethnocentric achiever where everyone thinks, you know, well, my country's better than your country, and so I'm going to achieve at the expense of you. And so you see China stealing trade secrets of the United States and United States blocking, you know, any work on 5G tech. And so this, you know, we, the achiever plateau and the protector plateau lead to great clashes amongst corporations, individuals, and even countries. And then, you know, the fourth plateau, by the way, I, I didn't mention the first plateau is really survival mode. Yes. And this is, you know, an individual who's really either temporarily stuck in a survival mode, let's say financial or health cr crisis, or like a, a, a full, you know, well over a billion people in the world or, or several billion people who are stuck in survival plateau because they're in a war-torn region or just dirt poor and struggling every day to feed themselves. It's very difficult to grow beyond um, that first plateau if you're in that kind of category or if you have a major crisis in your life that sucks you back down there and you're just struggling. There's no uh, daily attempt to actualize, um, to do the emotional development work. You just don't have time or the energy for it. Anyways, let me finish these up since you got me going on these. The, the fourth plateau I call the equalizer, and this is kind of like the pluralist who thinks everyone's equal, um, but there's a lot of shadow at the fourth plateau too in that most um, equalizers still have a sense of superiority because they're, ju they're very judgmental, right, of other people and other um, ways of being. And so this fourth plateau, even though we're transcending and including and getting more and more developed, uh, it's still not the penultimate goal of ours as a leader because the fifth plateau, which is the integrator, is the first like truly world-centric plateau where you see other human beings for the value that they bring uh, to you, your team, or the world. And you don't demonize them, put them down, or think that they're less than, even if they have some work to do, right? You're able to navigate all the plateaus and you've cleared up a lot of your shadow at these plateaus. Now, with um, developmental psychology, Chris, it's estimated that like less than 5% of the world is at that integrator yes. level. And one of my missions is to train and inspire over 100 million people to evolve to that integrator level, which is a world-centric leader who has great care and concern for all of humanity and planet Earth itself, and can still be extremely successful financially and in all measures, but that's not what's leading your uh, motivation every day, right? It's, it's, it's kind of like conscious capitalism on steroids. Yep. You're, you, it's okay to be successful and wealthy, but you know, we're not going to do it at the expense of anyone else. And we're going to have a truly abundant attitude toward all of humanity and mother earth. And so you're going to be a healer. You're going to be a philanthropist. You're going to be, you know, you're going to have cleared up all the shadows. So, you know, a lot of your work might be uh, social entrepreneurship or save the world type missions, but they're done in complete alignment with who you are as an individual and what's going to fire you up so that you are um, not doing the right, not doing the wrong things and not doing things for the wrong reason, which is a, I think that comes out pretty clearly in the book, Staring Down the Wolf, that ultimately that stage of alignment, which is the seventh commitment, not only as a leader, are you aligned with your passions and your purpose in life or your calling, 
but you're, um, you've created an organization or you're leading an organization or a team that is also aligned with something that is extremely meaningful to everybody on the team. And then every day you work on aligning so you can kick ass and take names. So I th- that's, the, you know, it's not easy to, to, to go through these five plateaus in a quick podcast um, mm-hmm. segment like this. And uh, if anyone really wants to go deeper on it, you know, there's, um, it comes from Ken Wilber's Integral Theory and uh, Don Beck's Spiral Dynamics. And there's, uh, there's different um, developmental models that this draws from. Even the Eastern spiritual traditions have developmental models that kind of lay on top of this and go into higher, higher stages above the integral. I'm really simplifying it here with five, but you could say there's almost like 12, 14 different developmental levels that individuals can go through to get to the highest stages, but very few are above that, are at or above that integral level. Agreed. But I think what's important about your book is that you do a great job of simplifying it to a point where you say, first of all, there are levels and these are the hallmarks of each. So be aware of where you're sitting today, but also be aware that you can elevate anytime you want to a higher level. It is also incorrect to judge other people because they're not yet at that fifth plateau because we're all on a path. And here are the things you can do to develop yourself towards the fifth plateau, which is the honorable goal. So I really like that. And I think- And and, and it's important to not look at it as a hierarchy, like, oh yeah, I'm at the fifth plateau. You're only at the second. Exactly. Because we have all of these in us and it, in our worst moments, you can easily get sucked back into a first plateau or second plateau. Right. But the, the integrated level person will do it with awareness and they'll have practices to make sure that their shadow at that plateau isn't dumping on someone. Because we use all these, you know, if I'm walking down the street and somebody jumps me, I'm clicking into my survivor yes. plateau, but I'm going to click into the positive aspects of that. And I'm going to de-escalate that situation. Whereas if I hadn't done that developmental work and really understood how to be sheepdog strong and how to uh, both fight as well as avoid a fight, then if the same thing were to happen and I click back into survival, I might seize up with fight or flight and end up getting injured or worse. So um, all of these are exist and co-arise. The point is at, at is as a leader to develop yourself so that your emotional shadow or your biases, or your just stuckness, your rigidity, because of the way you were brought up and your viewpoints and your religion or whatever it is, it's just stuck you at a certain level. So you you separate from other beings or you operate in a suboptimal manner, like I just described, which could get you killed or exactly. you know, get your business killed. So of all the seven, uh, excuse me, all of the seven commitments across those five plateaus, I think the ones that would be super fun to talk about are courage, trust, mm-hmm. and maybe resiliency. Let's, let's see how far we get. But Before we do that, one of the things that you touched on is that it would be difficult to lead from, let's say, the first or second plateau exclusively if that was your container, if that was your limit, right? When we think about what SEALs are capable of, we would easily regard them as the people who get shit done in environments where failure is not an option and it's always bad news going in. Like they don't, Mm -hmm. they don't bring you along to, you know, necessarily serve food um, (laughs) if, if the caterers don't show up. The mission is serious. The problem that I I think we have that my crew, my agile folks will really appreciate hearing more about is in the corporate world, we don't value a high bar. So we don't eliminate 90% of candidates the way Mm -hmm. the Navy SEALs do. We also don't really enjoy the word or the experience of failure. But if you flip that in what you described the experience of BUDS, for example, failure is the most important learning tool. We don't value discomfort. We don't like what you call VUCA, which is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environments such as you would find in wartime. So how do we get SEAL-like results in environments where that's not, you know, SEAL-like values don't exist? Well, it's a really great question, and it's really the one I'm trying to answer with all seven commitments. When you commit to courage, so that trust develops. And when trust develops, uh, you first are, as a leader, must become trustworthy. Well, then that leads to respect because, you know, respect is earned. Earn your trident of respect every day was our seal, kind of um, one of our ethos statement. So respect is built on trust. Trust is built on courage. And then that unlocks growth, which is the fourth commitment. And then you look at the team. And as a corporate leader, you can think this. I look at the team 
as my major vehicle for growth and your and your environment, your business culture should be your main vehicle for personal development and growth. And I mean growth at the vertical level, not not accruing more horizontal skills. Like we've got a plethora of horizontal yes. skills, doing skills. Now we need to work on the being skills. So if you spend 12 hours a day with your corporate teams and you're not growing with and through your corporate teams and, and unlocking their growth, then you're wasting a massive opportunity. And so in the SEALs, we took every day as an opportunity to grow. We weren't just mission focused. It was our, our attitude was master the self first so that we can serve our team and the mission most effectively. And if we weren't doing the self-mastery and the growth, then something was going to break or we just were going to show up and get kicked off the team eventually, right? Because everyone has to be firing in all cylinders and growing and, and learning and challenging themselves and getting comfortable being uncomfortable, like you said. Now, back to your question. And then the, the rest of the, you know, the, the um, commitments build upon growth. You know, that's what allows you to operate with excellence as a team. And then doing this day in and day out and having a long-term perspective and being super persistent and adaptable, that leads to resiliency. And then aligning every day, you know, allows you to, right, kick ass in the mission because you're all clear about why you're doing what you're doing. All of these kind of support each other and build upon each other in a very holarchical manner, almost like the five plateaus build upon each other in the holarchical right. manner. I mean, they transcend but include the previous commitment. When it comes to this idea of failure, like this is was such a awesome lesson I learned early in my days at Buds and then in the SEALs that we had this saying, failure is not an option. And it's easy to think like first level, there's always two or three levels of learning or insight, you know, when you have a platitude like that. So you think, well, yeah, it's not okay to fail. Wrong. What that means is the word, the concept of failure is not an option. So quite the contrary, we strive to break things. We strive to push the envelope and figure out how things aren't going to work. What someone else would call for failure, we call success because now we know how not to do something or a better way to do it, you know, something that um, is a challenging thing to do. And we're always striving to figure out how to do things better. In order to figure out how to do things better, you got to break, you know, the way it used to be done. So failure truly is not an option with that kind of attitude, that mindset. But in order to have that attitude, you really have to have trust, respect, and courage with the team because, you know, you're going to be doing scary things. You're going to be, you know, looking like a failure to maybe to an untrained observer. And uh, I tell the story about um, my sea daddy, Admiral McRaven, who was then Commander McRaven of SEAL Team 3. McRaven had this attitude and he demonstrated, you know, and he did not shy at all from risk and nor putting himself in risky situations as a leader, even when he didn't necessarily have to, or other leaders might have, you know, stayed back behind their office door or their desk. And he did this op operation up in Morro Bay with his team, you know, was preparing to go to combat. And he, and the surf zone was just massive. And they, you know, he pushed the team or didn't, you know, said another way, he didn't prevent the team from going out to the surf in their, in their $500,000 rigid hulled inflatable boats. And he went with them and they flipped this, these ribs upside down, nearly killing everyone on this mission, including McRaven. And it, he could easily have, you know, it could easily have ruined his career, but the way he handled it was so graceful that it actually developed greater trust. And it's because, you know, he looked at this event and, he, and in the investigation, he explained that, you know, SEALs need to be able to do this type of thing and they need to find where their edge is in terms of, you know, getting through really heavy surf conditions because that's what we do. We're maritime special operators. And, um, and he made the call to go and everyone, you know, thought that they could make it, including the uh, operators in the boat. And so he took full accountability and responsibility for the failure, even though he was just technically the commanding officer and the observer. But, you know, that's what you do as a leader. You take responsibility. And um, he said basically that, well, that level of transparency and ownership of the, the situation, you know, brought great trust amongst the team. And then his relentless follow through trying to ensure that um, all the lessons were gleaned from it so that the SEALs, not just him and his, that small team, but the entire force could learn from this situation in terms of what are the limits of the ribs and how, you know, how can we actually 
develop standard operating procedures to get you know through something like this. And when all said and, was said and done, the investigation came through. McRaven was completely exonerated, and his um, trust in him, you know, amongst all the players, both at the command and up the chain of command, went through the roof. And he repeated this type of thing over and over again, where he was um, continuously pushing the envelope, trying to develop new tax- tactics, techniques, and procedures when he didn't have to, but it was the right thing to do and failing forward fast. And so that attitude led him to be, you know, all the way up to be commander of SOCOM. And, and I attribute him with the guy as the guy who finally nailed bin Laden. He didn't shoot bin Laden. That was O'Neill. But he's the one that kept his eye on the ball for nine years as JSOC commander and then then over at SOCOM to, uh, to nail that guy. That's one of the Incredible. things he's, he's famous for. Incredible leader. If you guys don't know uh, Bill McRaven, look him up on uh, Google. There's, he does this great speech called Make Your Bed. Right. And uh, it's really inspiring. And, and you work with him a great deal. His, but his leadership at some point, didn't it cost him a little bit? Wasn't, did he get himself in a little bit of trouble? Well, yes, but it's just like any, it, you can almost compare it to our conversation with the plateaus. He worked at um, SEAL Team 6 with a guy named Marcinko. I also profiled Marcinko in the yep. um, chapter on excellence around the creation of SEAL Team 6 and kind of what led to that unit to be so damn successful. It's an incredible story. Um, but Marcinko truly was like a, 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 a third, second and third plateau guy, whereas McRaven was operating, I think, at a fourth or fifth plateau, even back as a lieutenant commander. And, um, and he was critical of the, I don't know if he was openly critical to Marcinko, but I, certainly at the command, he was critical of the mindset of that rough and tumble, you know, we're hairy chested frogmen who are comfortable slithering up in the beach with a knife in our mouth, you know, and, and we're going to go um, drink copium, copious amounts of beer and get in a barroom brawl after the op. I mean, that was the old frogman attitude, you know, the old Vietnam attitude that spilled over into SEAL Team 6. And um, Bill McRaven really was a more of a polished and professional guy every bit as tough as any of the other operators, but also equally competent at, um, you know, distilling higher order thoughts and building a PowerPoint presentation and pitching them to, yeah. you know, a chain of command, which, you know, you wouldn't find necessarily other guys wanting to do that kind of stuff. And so he was, he was critical and it got him fired. Yep. And um, he rebounded from that fairly quickly. After that, he went to Monterey uh, postgraduate school and got a master's degree in high intensity loan, uh, Special Operations, Low Intensity Conflict. And while he was there, he wrote a book called The Theory of Spec Ops, Mm -hmm. which was his dissertation, which became a must read in the the military. And uh, so, you know, he turned lemons into lemonade and then he was assigned to SEAL Team 3 and, you know, the rest is history. He just, his career vaulted from there. And you had some experiences as well, both in the military and outside where your style of leadership you got your ass handed to you a couple of times, but I think that's one of the lessons in the right. book is that 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 willingness to risk it all for what you believe in, and right. to endeavor to the best of your ability, moving towards that fifth plateau is what's going to make you a great leader. Exactly, because if you're if you're perfect all the time, if things are swimmingly awesome, it means you're not really risking anything. Right, you're just you're coasting, and and that illusion and, is so tied to ego, isn't it? Absolutely. Right. Everyone, you know, the ego says I'm perfect or I want to project this air of perfection. The problem with that, with that kind of mask is that you can't see it because you're looking out through it, but everyone else can see it as clear as day. Right. So when you come to your team as a perfectionist or with a big ego, uh, thinking that your your shit doesn't stink and, you know, you're the leader and then you're going to basically try to lead from that perspective, everyone else sees it. And they, the trust, you know, immediately evaporates and you're going to operate as a bunch of individuals, right? Which is not an elite team. It's not right. what we're talking about. You right. still get stuff done, but you're not, you know, in this VUCA world, you said the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, you want to navigate VUCA with a smile on your face, yes. then develop the emotional um, capacity to bring out the best in your team and not think that you got all the answers, right? Yep, it's, yep, yep. Everything's too complicated, too uncertain. Um, there's no way that any one individual can solve any problem anymore in the business world or any type of leadership situation. You really need the vast potential of the team 
And when I um, think about it, it's the team not just thinking more, you know, thinking with their original toolkit, but also thinking with that whole mind that we talked about earlier from the fifth plateau, where they're accessing their intuition and their spontaneous insight. And they've got that, uh, you know, that resonance of the subtle energy of the team kind of vibrating all in sync. Yeah. And boy, that's when magic happens at a team. And you have to live through that experience of saying, I can't do this. I don't believe right. in myself. I want to quit. And having a teammate go, don't you dare. I got you. Right. You have to live through that, I think, somehow in order to really appreciate what, first of all, what your capacity is, but also what it means to be part of a team and have a swim buddy. Right. You can't think your way into this. You have to experience it. You have to feel it. You know, when we're talking about emotional development, it's about your embodiment of deep awareness of who you are and what drives your behavior and also the negative reactionary conditioning. You know, studies show that we have five times as many negative thoughts and feelings as we do positive ones. Wow. Well, what are we doing about that as leaders? Right. How, are we, how are we ensuring, what's our practices, what are our practices to eradicate those negative conditioning and the reactionary conditioning that, you know, you bring to your team. I consider it like dropping little hand grenade, emotional hand grenades throughout the day. And you're mm -hmm. sometimes not even aware of them, but yeah. like I said, your team is eminently aware of them. Sure. And they go home and have to process this stuff with their spouse or, you know, kick significant the other. Yeah. And then they kick the cat, right? Well, you had said so. something interesting that, that your sense of humor, because I know you like humor, but it was rooted in sarcasm is something you brought up in the book, which has that right. negative kind of right. bitter aspect to it. And you had to learn to unroll that and find a more positive form of humor. Yeah. My family is uh, blessed and great people as they are. There was a negative, there was negative programming and processing this, you know, multi, you know, generational. And so for me, that showed up as, as uh, sarcasm in my humor is one way. And um, when I started studying Zen, I was able to detect and notice those patterns and also note how people reacted uh, when I dropped some sarcastic bombs in them. And, and I had to be, you know, I had to slowly change that one. And it gets easier and easier the more work you do on this stuff. Well, there's simple but, uh, things. So I'm interested in the simple stuff that people can use to get started because this whole journey is a lifetime of mastery. There's no true. one and done. So if you're no. going to commit to this life, you have to be prepared to be uncommon. So it is a right. continuous journey. But agile people love rails because agile is so not prescriptive. It simply says things like focus on the most important stuff first. Mm -hmm. Boom. That's perfect. So I want to get some little rails from you. One of the things I got from Unbeatable Mind about reducing that negative mindset is shut off the news. If a hurricane's coming for you, somebody's going to let you know. Right? <laughs> right. So you're not missing much by doing like a, a weekly or a daily digest, but shut off those outside influences because they foster fear for profit, one could argue. What right. are some other things that you believe are for great first steps towards eliminating the negativity that's so pervasive? Well, I think um, it's such a great question and it is really important. Most leaders, um, there's, four, there's four areas that we can affect change. One is of what we do and how we handle our bodies, right? And so you just address one thing that you could do that will um, lead to positive results and that's shutting off the TV. The other is actually um, taking a real hard look at what we think and what we believe, right? So, you know, are they related? Yes, but one's the exterior, one's the interior. The third is the culture, like um, affecting things from your interior sense of self and the way you behave that changes the culture or the mindset or the attitude of your team. That's really hard to do. So, you know, that's usually, I would recommend the last place you look, but that's also what mm -hmm. kind of staring down the wolf is about. But then there's that, that fourth part, which is the organizational structure and the, the doing of the organization itself. And you can, you know, you can have different uh, uh, rules and, and structural things that you can do that, that can affect change. So those are the four domains. So when I work with leaders, um, because most leaders do, are, are so focused on performance and doing, I start there because why not, right? It's not, um, it's, it's much harder to bring them right into a deep meditative practice. Mm -hmm. Why not let's uh, get some uh, excellence in our environment. So we shut off the news. We uh, uh, begin to avoid negative people and cut them out of our lives. We begin to declutter uh, some of the things that cause us a lot of stress because as leaders, we take on way too much. 
And if you're not like at least 60% aligned with your zone of genius, that uh, part of you, which is just fired up and loving what you're doing, then, you know, you're going to have a lot of stress and you're going to have some negative reaction, uh, reaction to, you know, having to do shit that you just don't like to do. 60% at least you need to be aligned. So declutter, start aligning with what you um, are supposed to be doing and aligning with your calling. That's really important work. The other thing is just to get into better balance. So, you know, my friends like Dave Asprey and Ben Greenfield all talk about hacking, biohacking, sleep, recovery, exercise, and those types of things. So yeah, just get into better shape suck it up and work out every day. Make sure that your body-mind system is operating physically at its most um, you know, optimal level. Otherwise, it's going to affect your mood. It's going to affect your ability to even be positive or to even sit in silence and, and, and change, work on your belief systems or work on your negative um, thought patterns. So start there. Yep. Those are simple things, but hard for a lot of people to do for the, you know, the simple fact of the matter that they're st- steeped in this pattern of hyper-competitiveness, hyper-activity, mm-hmm. and overly distracted lifestyle, right? And so the big chunk of what we teach in Unreal Mind in the early months is just stop all that shit. Like yeah. stop thinking you have to do everything. Stop thinking you have to be perfect. Start taking better care of your body. Start drinking more water. Start eating less food, fasting occasionally, intermittent fasting, you know, recover more and sleep at least seven to eight hours a night. Wow. What a profound impact that already has on your ability to show up uh, as an authentic leader. More stripping, more stripping away, really. Stripping it away. Right. Now you freed your, you freed up a lot of time and your body's getting back in the balance. Now we use one simple practice to begin to shift our attention from outer, the outer domain of always doing things into our inner domain of thinking feeling and being. And that is a breath practice I call box breathing. Yes, sir. Box breathing is a bridge between body doing and the mind being of an individual leader. So that practice is where, uh, that's like the secret weapon that everyone listening can add to their toolkit and begin a practice of box breathing, which is controlled nostril diaphragmatic breathing to a count of four or five and with a hold. And it's in the pattern of a box. You'll count You'll inhale to a count of four, hold your breath to a count of four, exhale to a count of four, and hold your breath to a count of four, and just focus on that. Yes. And do it for a minimum of five minutes every morning, but um, ideally for 20 minutes. That alone is profound. So those are some ideas. It's a huge game changer because I hear you doing it when I listen to your podcast, for example, I can hear you doing it with your guests. Absolutely. Right. When you've got to be ready, mentally prepared to answer the next question and to be present for that question, you can't do it if you're sitting there going, oh, what's that flashy glittery thing? That's fascinating. You might be the only one who's noticed that, but you're absolutely right. I I do box breathing throughout the day, but the only time I don't do it is when I'm talking. And um, Interesting. It's it's a practice though. And what it does is it slows everything down. It slows your normal breathing rate down. Most people breathe partly through the nose, partly through your mouth. Their breath is all connected to some sort of emotional or thought pattern, and they're just all over the place. But when you box breathe, you take control and you slow down to where you're breathing anywhere from five to six times per minute. Every breath cycle is getting a full, your lungs are getting full complement of oxygen, and every exhale, you're you're getting it all out. So you're detoxifying entirely. And that is also... um, you know, it's fueling your brain with all the oxygen, which takes 40% of your, or more of your body's energy. And so you're going to be more alert. And also it's slowing down the brain waves to, to an optimal kind of low beta high alpha level or for whatever task you're um, heading into, box breathing will, uh, will get you optimally primed mentally for that. And then as you're aware, Chris, because you've been part of Unbeal Mind, we first start the box breathing practice really as that physiological bridge between doing and being and the stress and your arousal response. And then we take it into, and we layer practices onto it. So we layer on the concentration practice to be able to um, raise our focus, our concentration. Then we layer in the mindfulness practice. And then we layer in what I call the witness interdiction process, which is attention control 
if your mind wanders, we snap it back and focus on the, the right thing or whatever is we're supposed to be focused on. And then um, at its deepest level, we go into that insight meditation, which is where I was at the beginning of this whole podcast when I was talking about the insights that accrued to me after three or four years of meditation practice that led me to change my entire life and and um, really operate from um, a much deeper or expansive sense of who I am as opposed to just, you know, thinking I am all these thoughts. Right. Now, the way I always explain it to my clients is that, you know, if you're in the SEALs, there's, there's danger, there's real physical danger and your body's programmed to help you navigate that danger. A great book on the topic is Dave Grossman's book. Right. But when you're in the corporate environment, there's no tiger. The thing that you fear is fear of rejection, fear right. of not being good enough, fear of being judged as the case may be. And so learning, because there's no mirrors in the mind, you can't see how you show up unless someone gives you feedback or you're watching tape. Right. And a great white shark, I always say, is a terrifying thing. You're going to throw ballast. You're going to poop yourself if you find yourself <laughs> face to face with a great white. But you put that same shark behind six feet of glass and it's like, oh, cool, shark. I love it. Right? And so the box breathing and all of these awareness practices that you're talking about are that six feet of bulletproof glass. Right. And it's, it's a great so metaphor. I love that. Yeah. Cause you're basically inter interrupting or taking control of that fight flight response. Um, and you're de de-stressing your body over a long period of, of stress buildup. So eventually when you practice box breathing every single day, you've completely de-stressed your body and you're preparing to win your body mind for that day. And um, there's really nothing that can phase you. Like you said, I love that idea. That, that, that great white that might, you think might be coming at you is behind six feet of right. glass. It ain't going to touch you because you're prepared and you're not going to have a negative reaction to it. What I learned from you is that that practice now opens the door for you to investigate what you call your boo, your background of obviousness, or your shadow right. self, which is that right. place where you go to meet the kid who was told they weren't good enough or who was abandoned or f for whatever reason wronged or oppressed at a time when you're so impressionable, right. we never get a chance to spend time with that version of ourselves. And I, I think what your book describes is that here's a rail for you. Here's a, here's a, a way to get started. If you want to build more trust, I think your book teaches us that you have to be that person who doesn't flip out in the face of emotional challenge, the person who is steady and calm. I think that's what people want in a leader. Right. Yeah. And, and willing to work on those deep subconscious patterns that I do call the background of obvious, which is your, your biases, your plateau issues, uh, depending upon where you stabilize your worldview, as well as the, um, emotional what the you know emotional world calls or the um, therapy world calls your shadow, which is most, if not all, comes from early childhood uh, trauma or pseudo trauma, right? And and um, you know studies into like attachment theory and negative love syndrome all show that human beings like doesn't matter, like I said, what your IQ is or how freaking wealthy you are you're going to have some aspect of that because it's, you know, as a young child, you're just completely vulnerable to whatever the whims of um, the parents and the neighbors and the uncle and whatever. And so some people experience extreme trauma in the form of like real abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, or, you know, just literally the trauma of uh, being, being left alone when you're a six month old kid and you have no individuated def differentiation between mom and you. And it's terrifying, you know, to that little child to, to be left alone because they, they are not a person yet in their ego sense. Yeah. And so people don't realize how that stuff follows them for their entire life. I remember hearing one therapist say the first five years of your life will dictate the next 95. Wow. And so if you're, if you're a leader thinking, oh, that's all silly stuff. I don't have any of that. Well, guess what? That's part of your boo. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and you right. do. And if you really want to unlock and uh, tap your full potential and, and unlock the full potential of your team, then it's a good, now's the time yep. to begin to do the emotional awareness work. Meditation is a way to expose the patterns and then we're going to identify whatever pattern it is that, you know, is your pet negative pattern. And then you go to town on that. You begin to work on that. 
and you know, we, we do, you know, have a number of tools and unbeatable mind that I use to work on that emotional stuff. And I, I mentioned a little bit in staring down the wolf, but, um, it's not so much of a practice book, even though I have some exercise in there, uh, as it is to really open people's minds about this and, um, hopefully inspire leaders to really go down this road of emotional development with and through their team so that they can unlock that potential. It should be required reading for anybody who is in the leadership game, especially for my tribe who, again, they're, they're unwilling passengers. Sometimes they've just been thrown into leadership roles, but it's so important to have that world centric view that you talk about in your mission to make was 150 million world centric leaders, Mark. Well, I said 100 million, but you know, I'll go for 150. I just, yeah, I just upped it to 150 for you. <laughs> just added me, added 50 million, no problem. Mark, one of the things in your book that completely blew me away is that after I read through the seven commitments, there's a chapter in there about a colleague of yours. And one of the big takeaways I got from that completely came out of nowhere, which is this friend of yours was responsible or took it upon himself to change the culture around poaching, trophy hunting in Africa somewhere, because we're, you know, what he described as the lungs of the earth was being depleted. Right. And the moral of the story is that we should just let women lead. (laughs) Well, that's what he found. Right. His name is Damien Mander. He took conservation and flipped it on his head. Instead of just equipping and training men to go out and try to shoot poachers, you know, how, how do you do that? How do you cover 20 million acres with just, you know, that's a lot of playing whack-a-mole. Right. And that's what they try to do. And they, they had very little impact. And then he had this inspiration. He said, what if we put women into this role and train the women up to be the, um, you know, the, the anti or the counter poaching uh, tactical teams? They still taught them how to do the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the tactical stuff. But what they found is the women didn't lead with a gun. They led with their hand and they used, you know, the, the Bush telegraph, which is gossip to figure out where the bad guys were and when they're going to be there. And then they would go talk to them and the guys would really, uh, they were solving the problem without firing any weapons and, um, and started to have some real success. And furthermore, they found that the women basically um, bought all their goods from their local town for the team and then spent over 60% of what they earned back in their local communities. Whereas the guys would not spend it. They spend it on toys. They wouldn't spend it in the local community. They wouldn't, they would buy their stuff from, you know, whatever, uh, their friends. Yep. And so they weren't doing anything to, and so the, the old model was actually hurting the very local environments and communities that were being affected most by the poachers instead of helping them. And when he flipped the model and these women came in, he found the community started to, flourish. And then those communities were protecting uh, against the poachers. So it became instead of like, oh, we're going to turn a blind eye because a few of us are making some money and we need the money to uh, where it's like, no, actually we're going to protect our own land and our own animals. And, uh, and, and there's a way for the women to make money and to cycle it back into the town. It's an extraordinary model that can be used in many, many different industries. And I think that, you know, one of the answers for the future is more women in major leadership roles and in, in pipelines for leadership roles because women tend to um, accelerate faster on the emotional mm-hmm. development um, uh, and they're less inclined to get stuck at some sort of egoic level of, of um, leading, right? They're going to be more world-centric and heart-centric just by their very nature. And they can be a great uh, model for men because men, it's not that they can't do that work, it's mm-hmm. just that our part of our cultural bias is that it's not necessary or, or shows weakness. Yes. And that's, that's got to change. And it was funny because I think your colleague commented that we forget that women are protectors. They're the ultimate protector. Right. And it, what, the name of the chapter is stop investing in violence. But what I took from that is stop investing in the stupid, you know, long held ideas and fears that keep us from doing what's right. Why are we fighting over pay equity? Why are we fighting over problems like that if we just did an experiment based on what we feel is right or what could work. We could change the world. And so I think that's so crucial to your mission of now 150 million world-centric leaders. (laughs) But uh, I'll tell you what, guys, you have to get this book. So Mark, I know you have some offers and some things you want to tell the crew about um, before the book comes out. So please have at it. Oh, thanks, Chris. Well, so yeah, the uh, book will be out March 2nd. If you're hearing this after that, then don't worry about it. Uh, I hope you do read the book because it's really uh, helpful as uh, we've discussed. But if you're 
um, on or before or on or around that date, then um, of course we, we would love to get the book on the uh, bestseller list so that we can, you know, get more people to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that we do that is having a pre-launch uh, set of offers. So if you go to staringdownthewolf.com, you can learn about those offers and, you know, you get a signed copy of the book if you order, I think five copies. And um, if you order a hundred, I'll do a Zoom uh, training with you and your team. And then uh, if you want to, if you're really into the book and you want me to come out and do a training or a keynote for you, if you order a thousand copies, then uh, I'll do that as well. So um, there's some other things there, but that's kind of the gist of it. And if you're, if, if listening to this inspires you to actually look at our training at Unbeatable Mind, then you can learn all about that type of training at unbeatablemind.com. Absolutely. If you want to hit next level, if you want to be uncommon, you got to be an unbeatable mind. You know, I think you should be an unbeatable mind coach, but if nothing else on March 2nd, get this book, guys. It's called Staring Down the Wolf, Seven Commitments That Forge Elite Teams by Commander Mark Devine. Mark, who's the wolf? <laughs> the wolf is yourself. It's the wolf of fear there we go. that resides in all of us. And um, you got to stare that bugger down and curate and cultivate the positive qualities uh, so that you can bring out the best in your team you so you can kick ass and take names i love it mark thank you so much for your time it was a real pleasure to have you on the show thank you for changing my life thank you chris it's been an honor appreciate it well there you go guys what did you think did you have some takeaways in there i know i definitely did the first big one was to master the self first so that you can serve your teams and the second big one was to relentlessly glean all the lessons learned possible from failure I hope you guys act on that one this week, and I also hope you guys pick up the book and check into some of Mark's other work, first and foremost at unbeatablemind.com. I've got links for you to buy the book in the show notes if you want to pre-order before the March 2nd launch date. Thank you for tuning in. As always, guys, I love you. I'm grateful for each and every one of you, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, stay badass. Stay badass.